Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together for another Sunday together under the means of grace. Lord, we come in faith, believing that if we listen to your word with faith, that grace comes to us and changes us. We believe that as we encourage and exhort and comfort one another, that you work through that, and you work through prayer, and you work through communion, which we're going to have today, to graciously change our lives. Thank you for that, Lord, and we know that this is the way you've ordained. We pray for wisdom as we study Second Corinthians. We pray for the scattered flock around the world that listens. May you also bring grace to bear in their lives, granting them the power to live a godly life as you are conforming them to the image of Christ. We ask that for all of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we are on Second Corinthians 11.18. Paul is preparing for his fool, so-called fool's speech, where he's going to boast according to the flesh, which is not his... He's doing it in a sense in an ironic way because he wants to show that his opponents are boasting according to the flesh, so the Corinthians are going to listen to them. And so if they won't listen to anything but that kind of boasting, then Paul will do it himself. And then and, and rebuke himself for being a fool for doing it. <laughs> but it's all the irony laced throughout these verses, so you have to know that. There, there's quite a bit of irony in the Bible. I was, I was studying some passage the other day where there was irony. Corinthians 1 and 2 both have a lot of irony. Here's the thing about irony in the Bible. If you fail to see it as irony, you'll believe the opposite of what the Bible's actually saying. So when you say something ironically, you're, you expect that people would know you're saying irony and not take it literally. Yeah. It's like when people say, boy, that's bad. Yeah. Oh, but bad is good. But if you think it's bad, then it's really good. Yeah. And it goes, it's the exact opposite. Yeah. It's things like voice inflection can, yeah, in, in speech, voice inflection can reveal irony. But when it's written on the page, you look at it, and, oh, Paul's a fool. What's he talking about? Yeah. A really good contemporary example is uh, Bruce Springsteen, Born in the USA, is not a patriotic song. And everyone who takes it that way is missing the irony. <laughs> they miss the irony. Okay. All right. So, the irony, the foolishness. Let's just repeat verse 17. Just read it and then go to 18. What I'm saying, I'm not saying as the Lord would. So he makes it clear that this is irony. But as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. But since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. According to the flesh in the Greek, katasarka. Uh, brash, uh, brash self-confidence. And when someone is praising their own experiences or their own would-be wisdom or their own would-be spirituality or what have you, that would be boasting according to the flesh. In his opponent, the many, so we know he has numerous opponents, but the many here are whoever those opponents are. And as we see as we go along here, they were Jewish opponents, and they were claiming some of the things that Paul is um, saying, well, I could claim these things too, but it's not the way you 
validate your own ministry. I was going to quote this garland. The Corinthians have put up with the foolish boasting of his rivals without demurring. They can probably endure a little boasting from their own apostle. <laughs> okay? If you can endure boasting from false teachers, why not endure it from a true one? Okay? Many have boasted the way the world does, that is, according to the flesh. That is, their boasting accords with the world's corrupt standards. If that is what it takes to get the Corinthians to listen, then that is what Paul will do. He joins the game reluctantly, however, because he has been driven to it. He's been driven to it. Wanting to be better than others in terms of status is foolish. Now, that's important, this idea of status. As, as we've been going through Luke, that theme comes up again and again and again and again. Okay, And one of the things that can lead us astray as Christians in, or in the church is when we desire status. Who has the status vis-a-vis somebody else? The less we think that way and the more we confer honor on those who seem to be less honorable, according to 1 Corinthians 12, the, the better the church is. Because, for example, the, the scribes and Pharisees were offended when Jesus ate with sinners. Well, see, these sinners had no way of gaining status in the world of the scribes and Pharisees. They had no way to do so. And they can't escape their sinner status because there were things about them that made them unclean. Even if they weren't horrible sinners, as far as the Pharisees were concerned, Pharisee means separate. So they, they, they never could get status. And Jesus came and gave them status and that's what God's grace does. And then Garland goes on and says, The Corinthians have no trouble with those who glory in themselves because that is exactly what they expect them to do. By contrast, they've, put, they've been put off by Paul's abject humility. Uh, so they don't like Paul's humility because their own motivations are wrong. Um, yes. Don't you think it's possible that Paul knew some of those Sadducees and Pharisees? Well, he'd been one of them. Yes. Yes. And, that, and, that, and I think we cross-referenced the other day uh, Philippians 3. I mean, that's a very telling section of Scripture. Because when Paul gives his former pedigree, he had that status. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, blameless, and he had status in the Jewish community. About as good a status as you could get short of being the high priest or something like that. And then he goes on and says, I counted it all but dung that I might win Christ. It was all worthless. It really is. What, what benefit do we get when somebody else thinks we're really good? <laughs> Got that going for me. <laughs> it really doesn't benefit anything unless your motives are wrong. Okay, go ahead, Larry. You read uh, chap, uh, verse 17, and this is kind of related to it, but what do you say to folks when they read that verse and others that Paul uh, wrote when he says that I am saying and not the Lord as to kind of put doubt on infallibility? I'm saying it, not the Lord. Right. Yeah, in he said that in 1 Corinthians 7. Yeah, because... What Paul was doing there, it is kind of an unusual section of Scripture because you don't see that in too many different places. What he was doing was giving his opinion, not binding uh, revelation. Do you get that? 
All right, all right. I'll get, let me prove it. Let me prove it. I didn't mean to open a can of worms. <laughs> well, we don't mind worms. <laughs> One Corinthians 7. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's pertinent to our passage because Paul's saying he's, he's talking like the Lord wouldn't. Okay? So here's, here's what, how, what does that have to do with the inspiration? Here's what we, here's what we know. Paul's an apostle. His writings are Scripture. So when he says, well, I say this, but not the Lord, what, what we know is that he actually did say that, and at that time in history, that actually was his opinion. But it's not binding because it's not the law of God. Now, in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10, But to the married I give instructions, not I, not I but the Lord. Now there, that's binding. The Lord says, where does it say, not the Lord but I? <laughs> Verse 12. Okay, so now, so that was binding teaching. But in verse 12 he says, But for us I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, she consents to live with her, she must not send the husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife. Yet the unbelieving one leaves, leave him alone, the brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases. Uh, how do you know a wife whether you will save your husband? Um, then he goes on and talks about staying single. And where, then later he says, but, but they're not bound. Where does he say that? Fifteen? Yeah, if the other one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister not under bondage. Such cases. The one, the part, I'm looking for the part where he talks about it's better to stay single. Help me find it. 32. <laughs> you don't need Paul for that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, verse 32. <laughs> but I want you to be free from concern. The one who is unmarried is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please 40. the Lord. The one who is married is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. His interests are divided. The woman who is unmarried... And the virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord, and so on. It's 26. He goes, I think that this is good in view of the present distress, that it's good for a man to remain. So he's saying, I think. I think. I think. But then later. And he goes, in my opinion, on 40, but in my opinion, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think I also have the Spirit of God. But he's so giving his opinion. He's That's giving opinion, not binding. And, and then somewhere he says, if you do marry, you don't sin. Okay, so you're not bound to that Paul's advice there. That was just his advice at that time in history, but it's still Scripture. In verse 35, he says, This I say to your own benefit, not to put a restraint upon you, but to promote what is appropriate. So he, he... Yeah, he's not binding. That's the difference. Now, that would be like, let's say, a pastor. If I decided I wanted to offer you advice, okay, on something. <laughs> What's that? Yeah, picking stocks. I know what stocks would be a good one to buy. My advice is worth every penny you paid for it. <laughs> okay, Diane. I've talked to a lot of women who think because he says that, that it's just his opinion, that everything he writes is just his opinion, and we don't have to abide by it. And, and it changes the tone of a woman's Bible study. And, and you know... Yeah, well, that's. I, I don't know how to deal with that. 
Okay, uh, the way you deal with it is that this is only particular to one issue that he's talking about in Corinth, and Paul's opinion at that time in history, but everywhere else he's writing binding scripture. And even at that, we can read that and learn that and understand it's more of a historical document there like Acts. It's historical about how Paul was looking at life at that era of history. And so it's telling us something. There's things that happen in church, or I mean in, in Acts or what have you, that aren't binding. They're just what happened. I, I think the other probably strongest passage to say that his opinions weren't just his opinions or that his, his writings weren't his opinions is Second Peter. When, he, when Second Peter's talking about Paul's, Paul's writings, Paul's writing calls them scripture. Second Peter 3, 15 or 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our, also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote you, and also in his, all his letters, speaking in them things which are hard to understand, which they are untaught and unstable, distort, as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. So he's saying Paul's writings are equivalent to the rest of scriptures, and if the rest of scriptures are binding, then Paul's writings are yep, too. Absolutely. Good. That's a good answer. Here's the answer. Uh, Bob in the back row. <laughs> I'm just curious, uh, since all Scripture is inspired by God, even though Paul is stating his own opinion, would that be through action of the Holy Spirit in Paul's uh, heart? Well, the, no. The, 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 see, Paul saw the resurrected Christ, and he would, the, the Lord, uh, the resurrected Lord taught him. Okay, and the resurrected Lord hadn't taught him uh, uh, that people need to stay single, so that's why he says, "Not the Lord." I did not have that from the Lord. But in his writing, he's inspired. So all of his writing is inspired. But we, what we learn from that particular section, is what Paul was thinking at that part era of history, which that so it's inherently down on the page. But he himself says, "This is binding." And he says in that section that if you marry, you have not sinned. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Doc, to forbid marriage is the doctrine of demons, and Paul said that. So we can't take that as forbidding marriage. And uh, maybe his opinion at the po- that point was that you know history was going to be shorter than it is. I don't know. I hope I can clarify this. I, I think I disagree with Keith. This section of scripture, you can't just say that. Paul wrote scripture, and so therefore, with respect to Diane's comments regarding it takes a Bible study, and, and now we don't see Paul as authoritative anymore. Well, Paul is authoritative even in this section. However, he's authoritative in the manner in which he intended, right? Yeah. He intended it yeah. for it to be advice. Right. So it's authoritative and inspired by it's God. So it's still scripture. It's, it's completely authoritative. Yeah. But the authority, the authority is not saying, do this. The authority is saying, here's my advice. Yeah. So he, he didn't bind anybody to it. Well, I don't see it's any different than what he said. It's still Scripture. Or Peter said, frankly. All right. We've got to get back to the fool here. Paul the fool. <laughs> Paul is going to boast. Oh, I have a cross-reference. Robert, you go ahead and do the first one. Jeremiah 9, 23, 24. Jeremiah 9, 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, 
But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Wow, what a great passage. Whatever you think you got going for you, riches, wisdom, whatever, it's not worth talking about. But if you know the Lord, that's worth glorying in. God who works righteousness in the earth. That was Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24. Fabulous passages. Fabulous. Verse 19, 2 Corinthians 11, 19. For you, being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. Now, we got sarcasm, irony, okay? Paul wasn't actually saying that they were wise. He is, there's a little jab going on here. Paul doesn't think they're wise, they're unwise, and tolerating the foolish is not wisdom, but it's what they like to do. So therefore, uh, his kind of a lesser to greater, what's that kind of argument? You know, if if you're going to tolerate these fools, then at least tolerate me, okay? When when he talks about foolish, it's not a mental thing. If you're going to tolerate the flesh, if you're going to tolerate fleshly expressions, then tolerate my fleshly expression because this is what I've done in the flesh. He, he doesn't like a fleshly argument and he calls it foolish. But he's, you know, so they, they're claiming the wisdom of God and he's giving them flesh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, okay, 1 Corinthians 4.10, Rich. And then, uh, Steve, could you look up Revelation 3.17? Yeah, when Paul gets all done with his fool speech, then he's going to go and boast in his weaknesses which is what he really wanted to boast with anyhow. Because when you're weak, then you're strong. Okay, 1 Corinthians 4.10. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Irony. Okay, irony. Because all those things they thought they were honorable and strong and everything about was just flesh. Okay? 17. Revelation 3.17. Because you say I am rich, I have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Yeah. So the, the Laodicean church says I'm rich and I need nothing. And Jesus says to them, you don't know that you're wretched. How does someone find out that they're wretched? <laughs> the, God, the law and the gospel. You know, you bring the bear, if you, if you really bring the bear, the law of God in his fullness on, on anyone under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the only conclusion you can come to is that you're wretched, that you fall short, that you sin. And that, that you could never abide in the presence of a holy God. That if you were actually to come in the presence of God, his wrath would consume you and you would end up in hell. That's how you find out you're wretched. And then you look for the true righteousness, which is the imputed righteousness of Christ. Well, well uh, in Job 1.8, God is praising Job and saying, well, here's a righteous servant of mine. You know, he, without blame. And he was really praising Job, I mean, from God's mouth to Job, about yeah. Job. And then if you look further, further on, 
God goes after Job and says, you will gird yourself up like a man and you will answer me. Where were you when I laid out the foundations of heaven? And God showed Job his omnipotence and his splendor and his righteousness. And Job said, I am, I abhor myself. I repent in dust and ashes. So when you get a glimpse of God, you know your foolishness and you're able to repent. Thank you, Rich. Very well stated. Back in the 80s when, remember the self, some of you have been a Christian long enough, remember when self-esteem was the whole rage in the church? You know, and uh, self-esteem books are being published and having a good self-image and all of that stuff. And when I was fighting that, that was, that, that was the kind of argument that I used. So if there's anybody that ever had high self-esteem, it was the Laodicean church. And, 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 and the Lord rebuked them. And then when somebody, like you said, like Job, abhors himself, then he's praised by God, right? And look at that attitude throughout Scripture. Isaiah, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, what did he see? I'm a man of unclean lips. And uh, what did Peter see? When Peter got a glimpse of the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ in Luke 5, when they were in the boat, he says, depart from me, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner. And then all of these passages in Luke, Jesus in Luke 7 goes in to have a banquet with the Pharisee, Simon. And as they are reclining at this banquet, a woman of the city, a sinner, comes in and begins to weep on Jesus' feet and brush his feet with her hair and so on. And if you remember when I preached through that, this material from Kenneth Bailey points out, that all those things she did symbolically were the things Simon should have done for any guest, and he hadn't. So he had treated Jesus dishonorably. And the woman who knew she was a wretched sinner had not even consciously welcomed Jesus the way he should have been. And then what did he say to her? Go your he says to her, your sins are forgiven, and he says, your faith has saved you. All right, so... There's, a, there's an ironic reversal going on here. And that is that those who are sure that they're sinners and are quite sure that they're not worthy to be in the Lord's presence are the ones who are exercising faith. Back row, way back there for Glenn. <laughs> oh, um, just a quick footnote. That starts in Job 38. And um, John MacArthur says that is the greatest browbeating in all human history. <laughs> so if you want to want to know what that looks like, just pick up Job 38. Okay. And read, wow, God. He, said, he, he, he finally saw the sovereignty of God in all things, yeah. and that's what destroyed him. Yeah. Yeah, he, he was quoting MacArthur, said it was the biggest browbeating in human history. God to Job. <laughs> well, let's, let's see here. We did verse 19. Let's go to verse, let's see. Is there anything else I need to see? Though the word tolerate here has been repeated in this chapter, and it has to do with bearing with. Paul says, bear with me. See, so the, the real issue, the word tolerate, because it's repeated in this chapter, becomes a key to understanding the chapter. Uh, tolerate or bear with. And the reason it's repeated is at issue is who are they going to tolerate? Will they tolerate the, the ones who preach another gospel, another Jesus, and have another spirit, 
and the ones who exploit them and the ones who take advantage of them, and they bear with them. The ones who boast according to the flesh, they bear with those willingly. And then the big issue is, will they tolerate Paul? Who do they want to listen to? Who is the one speaking for God? So you tolerate the foolish gladly. How? By listening to the false teachers. That's how they do that. And then maybe they'll tolerate Paul. So verse 20, it repeats that word. For you tolerated, if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, and anyone hits you in the face. Yes. <laughs> There's a good cross-reference to that in Revelation 2.2. 2. He's talking about the church in Ephesus. Yeah. Yeah. He goes, Jesus is speaking, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. Right. And that you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. So that's a yeah. Yeah, yeah, and then the word tolerate comes up again in the, or the letter to the seven churches because there was the ones that tolerated Jezebel. Okay, so you could almost say, yeah, tolerate. Maybe, let's say it this way. Who you are willing to tolerate says an awful lot about your spiritual motivations. Think about it. Think about it. Absolutely. Think about it. People will tolerate someone taking advantage of them, exploiting them, abusing them, giving them bad teaching, and they'll just keep going back for more. Usually those type of people, if somebody comes and preaches the true gospel to them, they don't like that. All right? There's something seriously wrong. You have the Laodicean. Pat. I see the parallel in this with all this business about the fairness doctrine and who we can tolerate to speak the word and who we can't tolerate yeah. to hear at the moment. It says a lot about who, who, who we're willing to fund. I mean, look at the church in America. Who's, who's, who's funded in our world? Rick Warren, Joel Osteen, Kenneth Copeland. I mean, these, these people that are doing disservice to the body or and or totally exploiting them and there's degrees of how bad it is and yeah so they're tolerated they're funded but the people who are preaching the truth just have to carve out a little niche somewhere you know get a website or self-publish your books yeah well i think that in this case it's a one one kind of toleration of the congregation tolerating something but I think Paul's also dealing with the leaders. The leaders that tolerate other things that are intolerable are doing a disservice to the congregation. And the leaders that would tolerate something being said or something being done without saying no would also fill right into yeah. this thing. Well, that's exactly what are the complaints I get from the Internet audience out there is that uh, time and time and time again, I hear from people on the phone and... I just got a call this week from Nashville from somebody who was being abused by church leaders. She was in a meeting just wanting to see if she could have a, be a part of the prayer team or something like that. And somebody came in, took one look at her and says, you have a spirit of witchcraft, you need deliverance. Said, what? That's abusive. 
You can't do that. All right. Now, or I hear these these sort of things. Oh, they're gonna our our church is now uh, gonna spend the next forty days doing another one of these, you know, whatever. Forty days of wasting your time and not preaching the gospel. <laughs> and and so they go to the pastor and say. We want the Bible to be taught. We want the Word of God. We want the Gospel. We're hungry. We're hungry sheep. We want to be fed. And the answer is, well, you probably should go find another church. So the pastor won't tolerate the flock wanting the Gospel. There's tolerate. You can have cases where the pastor might be a good pastor, and another person he just tolerates the activity going on. I know some big churches where the pastors are good. But, but they tell oh yeah. them because they don't want to stir up any, any dissension, so I will tolerate things and the people that end up getting hurt under their ministry. Yeah, that's true. There's, there's, I've heard many cases like that where the pastor himself is teaching the Word, but within the bowels of the church you've got theophostic ministry going on, uh, the flock being abused by these people that teach divination and all this other stuff, and they're not willing to... To do anything about it. Okay, now let's get to our verse. If you tolerate anyone who enslaves, so the false teachers make their followers their slaves. In what way? False teachers always want to be served. False teachers have this idea. It's just built into their mind and their thinking. And they believe it, if some of them. If the most dangerous deceived person is the one who doesn't know he's deceived, who believes his own lie. And they actually believe this. If you sacrifice for my benefit, if you give money for my benefit, if you do everything for my benefit to make me more successful, that's what God is going to be pleased with. Rather than the, the leader thinking, I need to humble myself and serve the Lord for the benefit of the flock, the flock exists for the benefit of of the leader. Do you see the difference? All right. Well, that's how they're enslaved. So that's exactly what these guys do. They enslave the flock to to serve their own ends, whatever that might be. Not every one of not every one of them is interested in money. Maybe they're interested in the boastful pride of life. Maybe they're interested in the lust of the flesh. Maybe they're interested in who knows what, but it's not interested in the well-being of the flock of Jesus Christ because the leaders who are interested in that are always willing to serve. They're always willing to forego their own uh, feathering, their own nest, and they're willing to try to do whatever they can to go find that lost sheep that's out in the wilderness. That's, uh, let's get this verse done. If anyone enslaves you, if anyone devours that word devours. Okay, we need a verse. Carla, could you look up Mark 12:40? I want to make sure we cover this one because I, I, I'm trying to get accelerated a little bit so we can get into uh, the next book that we're going to study. Uh, Mark 12:40. Who devour widows' houses and, for appearances' sake, offer long prayers? These will receive greater condemnation. Okay, the same word is used there. So who's doing this? The false leaders. What are they doing? Devouring widows' houses. Why would you devour a widow's house when you're supposed to take care of the widows? Because you believe that you have status with God, and the way that widow gains status is by serving you. 
She has to vicariously gain status by serving the leader rather than being given the status because the leader sees the heart of God is for the widows. Now, in about a week, in fact, in a week, I'm going to preach on the parable of the lost sheep and maybe even the parable of the lost coin. I'm going to try to do that once, and then we'll go into the prodigal son. This is the amazing thing what a shepherd would do to go find a lost sheep. And when you see the details of how that works, it's an amazing thing. They literally risked their lives because they were in a dangerous area. Once that sheep left the fold, they were out, they'd take these things out in the wilderness area and then bring them back to the village at night, this sort of shepherding. So if one went loose, they would not stop until they either found the sheep or found evidence that a wolf or something had devoured it. But they had to bring it back. And that was to guarantee they hadn't stolen any of the sheep that were under their charge or sold them. And they would get so far into the wilderness sometimes trying to find the sheep. And the, only, and the sheep, when they get lost, they get disoriented because they're a herd animal. And they'll literally lay down and just bleat and can't get up again. They will lay there until they die if they're not found. And the shepherd would actually then have to put the sheep over the back of his neck, usually tie the feet together, and, and, and out of rugged... If you, some of you are going to Israel. You'll see what it's like in Israel. It's not where you'd want to be walking with a 70-pound sheep over your head trying to get back out of there. And, and they were risking their lives. Now, that's an illustration of the heart of God for the lost. This is an illustration of the heart of God for his chosen flock. And true shepherds will do whatever they have to do for the welfare of any sheep, any of them. They care about them. They will do what they have to do, even risking their life if necessary, for the welfare of the sheep. That's what it looks like. And the false ones will not do that because it doesn't benefit them. The widows have nothing to offer other than what you can get out of them if you are a false teacher. So that's devouring widows. Takes advantage of you. The word here for takes advantage is in the Greek catch, catch. And it it has quite a large range of meaning. It, It typically just means receives. But when used in this context, it means like catching fish. It's used in Luke 5, 5 for catching fish. Okay, so in this kind of a context, it would mean they, they're, they're being caught. They're being caught in the web or the net. Um, and Paul uses it ironically in 2 Corinthians 12, 16, ironically, where he says, I caught you. Well, he didn't actually. In other words, I'm, I, I'm like those false guys. Not really. I caught you. So they're not trying to feed you. They're trying to catch you to serve their own ends. How can this be done in the name of religion? Dear ones, it's been done in the name of religion forever. Every time. If you, if religion has proven to be the best method of taking advantage of people ever devised. As a matter of fact, I would say this. If I wanted to be a devious person and I wasn't so worried about going to hell, the easiest, best way to get ahead would be to start a new religion where you're selling some religious product to people claiming they're going to gain benefit. It would, it's the easiest thing to do because they don't believe anything. All right? 
people are naive. What's our protection? How are we not going to get caught? Well, the way we don't get caught is we must be trained in the whole counsel of God. We need to know the gospel. We need to know the Bible. We need to know how to interpret it for ourselves. You need the tools to do so, and it's our obligation to make sure you gain those tools. And that's why we teach hermeneutics and and try to get you the tools to do so. It should be such that if a pastor uh, takes a passage and goes the wrong way with it, whether uh, on purpose or not, 20 people will come and correct him after the service. It happens because it's happened to me. (laughs) Okay. I know it does. And that's a good, that's a good sign. I don't want to stay. I don't want to be. If, I, if I'm in the air, I don't want to stay there. Amen. Now, a lot of times it's over typos on PowerPoints, but, <laughs> <laughs> but that's good. That's, they're paying attention. All right. Advantage of you. They caught you. They exalt himself. Okay. What does that mean? That means the religious leader wanting to gain status at the expense of the flock he's supposed to be caring for. This is an epidemic problem. It grieves the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ's heart is for the benefit of the sheep that he came to die for. And true servants of Jesus Christ have a heart for the flock and have a heart for the sheep and will they'll suffer loss if needs be for their benefit and is not looking for status. Status is worthless. Then he, then he, this is a list of five evil actions. Enslaves, devours, catches, exalts himself, and then hits you in the face. Hits you in the face. Probably uh, ironic to, to just ratchet this thing up. I got a couple quotes on this, and then we got a little time for discussion. Let me get uh, Garland uh, here. Says this: the church has been taken in. Paul uses the same verb lambano in 12:16, where he says. Yet, crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. The image is one of baiting a trap and catching the unsuspecting. This is what Satan does by guile. The difference is that the rivals took them in and took their money. Paul took them in, they think, but he refused to take their money and refused to take advantage of them in any way. The rivals pushed themselves forward, which means that they put on airs and lifted themselves up. The Corinthians apparently preferred this approach than to that of Paul who humbled himself so that they might be exalted. The Corinthians also seem to endure, if not welcome, being slapped to the face. This may be a reference to an actual physical violence or a metaphor for verbal insults and general browbeating. Okay, now your comment. Uh, there's a, if you go on the web and look up Todd Bentley, you can see on the web, literally, Todd Bentley was claiming big miracles for healing, that people would come up and he would smack them. One oh, guy yeah. comes up, he had a, a, a tumor in his stomach, and Todd Bentley came and ran at him, kneed him in the stomach, and knocked him down. And the guy was, he said, that's what the Holy Spirit told me to do, and the guy was all grateful. And then he died later on. But uh, this is a true story. It's right on the web. So it could be that, for all we know, he's really physically beating people, and they're thanking him for it. Yeah, yeah it could be literal. Here's uh, Barnett. Whatever the exact meaning of these five elements, they represent the antithesis of the godly minister of the new covenant modeled on the meekness and gentleness of Christ. 10.1. Such a minister gives himself to and for the people as Christ did. In the spirit of self-sacrifice, 
The contrast is much more pointed because Paul will immediately relate how he has fulfilled such a ministry and at considerable personal cost. The exploitive and manipulative actions listed here have become all too familiar in the treatment by leaders of both adults and children in a number of highly publicized modern cults. The cults operate in this way, exploiting people to take advantage of them. And in a church, people are vulnerable because they're assuming that if somebody has been given leadership, that that person has their best interests in mind and is willing to care for them. What if uh, someone's in a, in a group or a cult or, a, or under the leadership of one of these false teachers, but they're being allowed to do whatever they want, they're not being pressured, they're being treated you know, very kindly and generously, but yet they're experiencing all this false teaching. They could look at these verses and say, well, nobody's enslaving me, exploiting me, taking advantage of me, so this verse doesn't apply to me, but yet they're they being don't bewitched know. by a false teacher. They are, they're bewitched, yeah. And, you know, and sometimes they'll go to the defense of the false teacher. And people have asked me, that's another question I regularly get. What do I do? I, for instance, my sister is going, to, I'm just, this is fiction, chick fiction, but it's a, an account of typical type things I get, okay? I'm not thinking anybody in particular. But somebody will call and say, my sister goes to this new apostolic reformation church. And they have apostles and prophets and they're, they do this, and they do that, and they teach this, and they teach that, and it's just horrible stuff. It's abusive. And I try to tell her to get out of it, and she just gets mad at me. Now, how do I help her get out of it? That's, what, that's the question. How do I get her out of this? And I said, well, the same way Paul uh, tried to get his Jewish brethren out of their hard-heartedness. You read Romans 9, hopeless situation, only a few are saved. They, 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 when Paul tries to get them out of their lost state, they attack him, stone him, drive him out of town. And he says, but what did he do? He said, but my heart's desire is, is their salvation. And I pray for 1 Corinthians 10. Here's something. Don't underestimate God answering prayer. When somebody gets caught and enslaved in error, it takes an act of God to get them out. And in sometimes Luther used the term a thunderbolt of grace. A divine thunderbolt comes and wham! Whoa! I'm a slave. I've got to get out of this. Isn't that how we did? If any of us, anybody here experienced that? Yes, Rich? Yep. Go ahead. Um, I was thinking, you know, for me, the, the Christianity and the false doctrine is the worst kind of occult blackmail. Because if you don't follow what they say, your eternal soul is on the line. And if you do follow what they say and things are still coming out bad for you, then it's because you didn't have enough faith or yeah. something else. And either way, you're, you're still in it. It's really bad. Yeah. So pray, patiently share the truth, gently correcting those who are in error, being patient when wrong that says... And that's how we have to try to do that. It takes a lot of patience to try to help someone get out of, an, of their bondage. Yes? It just seems that false teachers are always going the absolute opposite direction of Christ, who came to serve us. Yeah. And then they get in their model, and they make you serve them. Yeah. They will make you serve them. And that's, 
And they'll, and, and they'll imply or state straightforward that you serving them is what's going to make God happy. <laughs> now, and people, I don't know why we, they don't see it more clearly, but somebody says, okay, you have money, and you've got quite a bit of money, and if you gave it to me, God would be so happy. <laughs> Does that add up? <laughs> but they do it, yeah. I was just thinking that, you know, 10, 20 years ago, it was easy to identify a cult, for any of us to identify a cult. And the insidious thing now is the cults are in the churches. You know, um, for instance, I was reading the article you probably saw in the paper this week about the ELCA, that the way they're handling the whole sexuality question is they're going to leave it up to the congregation. So rather than God being authoritative, it's going to be a democracy now. And what are the people who are in those congregations who don't believe that's correct? They're just going to either have to go with the flow or find another place yeah. to go. Yeah. And that's what's happening all over now. They jettisoned the, the authority of Scripture, did they not? Scripture is going to tell us whether somebody who's practicing immorality can be ordained. And it doesn't allow it. All right. Exactly. So we've got serious problems. Uh, I think we've got time... Let me see here. I think I quoted everything. Let's go to verse 21. Now this, this, remember the paragraph or the verse divisions are not inspired by God. They were put in later. This one, it actually, a new paragraph starts in the middle of the verse. Right? So the first sentence is the end of one section. In the second part where it starts with but in whatever is the beginning of Paul's full speech proper. For the full speech runs, the proper full speech, that means when he actually gives it, he's been alluding to it, is 1121B through 1210. Right? That's it. Now, first, so let's go to that first sentence. Again, we have uh, irony. You've got to catch it. If you don't catch the irony, you get the opposite of what's true. To my shame... I must say that we have been weak by comparison. All right. Um, here's the thing. This is Paul Shane. If we're going to have an abuse the flock contest, all right, if we're going to have a contest about who can abuse the flock and who can fleece them and who can uh, enslave them and who can do all these things, devour them, Paul says, to my shame, you win the contest. Okay. <laughs> I laughed. I just, I just don't measure up when it comes to abusing the flock. <laughs> so that's, that's the irony, okay? So I'm just not very good at it. I'm not very good at this abusing the flock thing. Here's uh, Garland on this one. As far as the world's values are concerned, he lives in dishonor, but according to God, he, li- he has honor. If being strong means doing what his rivals have done, then he's unquestionably weak. Yet it is a weakness that God approves. God never condones the tyranny, pomposity, and meanness that church despots have inflicted on the church across the ages. Across the ages. It's human nature. It's what the flesh looks like. That's what the flesh looks like. You put the flesh in religious garb and give the flesh power, the flesh will fleece the flock every time, 100%, without fail. Because they just do it in some way, whether positively by 
taking their money or passively by refusing to give them the gospel. Yeah. And I think that there's multiple ways that that happened. I would guess that most sincere Christians would be most tempted to give money away, not to a crass guy say, I need to build a 60-story medical center, which I was there when that happened. It's much more compelling to say, please give me your money so I can feed the poor, clothe the naked, and I'll, I'm going to build my ministry on your money. Please give it to me. You can have a very subtle, pietistic type of appeal yeah. that will very much be appealing to the flock and to the people that have genuine compassion, but it's still no better than the other side because in this case, the man that's building his ministry has pietistic motives that seem altruistic, and he's not pocketing the money himself. Often they are, though. Remember some of those scams that happened over TV where the guy was building orphanage in Haiti and had taken in millions of dollars, and then the investigative reporter goes down to Haiti. But look look, look at Warren. He's not. That's true, but he's he's not giving you the gospel. No, but that's what I'm talking about. You can give a pietistic message. He's not... He's not building bigger homes for himself. He's getting millions of dollars for AIDS, for relief of orphans, for other things that are good, and it would appeal and resonate to somebody that wants to help them out of compassion. Okay, but it's not the gospel. That's what I mean positively or negatively. But that's a false gospel. It's a social gospel. Right. It's, it's not the true gospel. So it says in uh, in First Corinthians 13 that if I give my body to be burned and and, and do all of these noble things that have no love, what, what good is it? Agape love always looks out for the good of other people, right? What's the ultimate good for every person? That their sins are forgiven. Okay? If you don't offer the forgiveness of sins through the gospel, you're exploiting the people no matter how much good you're doing. Mother Teresa can be seen to be an exploiter in that paradigm. Because she would not give them the gospel. So, for a few years in this miserable life, you're more comfortable, and then you get to go to hell. That's exploiting. And building St. Peter's Basilica with indulgences was exploiting. That's why Luther revolted against it. So, going into the dangerous wilderness to find the lost sheep and put it on your shoulders and carry it back out to safety is analogous to the God saving the lost through the gospel. It says in Luke 15 that, the, that heaven rejoices. There's actually joy in heaven when one sinner repents. And MacArthur, I listened to some of his stuff on there, and he says, this is, a, this is the only thing we can do on earth that we know creates joy in heaven. Bring the gospel to the lost. Isn't that a, isn't that, shouldn't that motivate us uh, to be gospel-oriented in everything that we do? And that's certainly what Paul was all about. Now, let's go back here. We have been weak, probably something the opponent said about Paul. And so this sets up his teaching on power and weak, in weakness that will come later in chapter 12. Power is revealed in weakness. And... God uses the weak things and the things that are not to shame the wise. God's ways are not like man's ways. God's ways are different. But then in the, the, now we begin a, the, a new paragraph with but. 
But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I'm just as bold myself. Here's the beginning of the fool, fool speech. He is going to boast in things he does not consider boastworthy. So what did Paul not consider boastworthy? Perils, shipwrecks, floggings, beaten with rods, life endangered. All of these things that he goes, that he's going to give a litany of all the misery and suffering he went through because travel in the ancient world was perilous. As soon as you got away from the civilized parts of that world, you were absolutely vulnerable. Bandits would wait in the wilderness areas. I was just reading about those in a book that someone gave me last night. They called them social bandits. And, and the, the Robin Hood type of thing was real. That was a really interesting thing I was reading. That it, after there was upheaval in a society back in the, the way things were, and the peasants are either divested of their land or divested of their possibility of, of surviving because of some social upheaval, little bands of them from uh, 15 to 40 would gather, and they would call them. They would be the, the sociologists called them social bandits, and their way of doing two things: surviving and trying to right injustices was to go out in the wilderness areas, hide in caves, in places that they weren't big bands for it usually wasn't therefore it wasn't worth the Romans or whoever was ruling to try to go find them. Okay? And then they'd come out of there and strike people they thought had had money. Well, they didn't pick on the poor, they were like the Robin Hoods. And they'd rob all this money and, and from these people that were travelers that they thought might have something. And uh, run back to their cave and <laughs> rob them of their goods or whatever they could do. They plundered them. So it would, because these sort of things exist in that world, travel was extremely dangerous. And a lot of these things that Paul's going to list in his full speech are directly related to travel. And ships were, I'm going to read some quotes to you when we get to that, uh, ships were places that you went to die. <laughs> according to some of the Proverbs that they'd say. This happens, this happened, this happened, this happened. And uh, a, bad, a bad turn of the weather suddenly in the, in the ancient world wrecked many a ship. And then when Paul went into the populated areas, the gospel is what cost him all of the grief. He'd get thrown out of the synagogues, beaten, whipped, 39 lashes. That was the Jewish punishment for blasphemy. Beaten with rods, that was a Roman punishment for causing trouble. So he'd go into the city, preach the gospel, and an upheaval, he'd read it in Acts, and what happens? Uh-oh, who's the troublemaker? So see, government uh, officials in all worlds don't like trouble on their watch. Okay? I mean, the easiest thing to do if you have a government job is to just go to your job and do it, and nobody bugs you. All right? And so... Paul comes into town, and somebody's the governor, and he goes into the synagogue and preaches the gospel. And next thing you know, there's a riot going on under your watch. It's going to make you look bad to the guy above you. okay? And so that's why they'd go in and beat him with rods and send him out of here. You're making my life too difficult. Mr. Robert, announce to the people what we're going to do special today with chairs and tables and so on.